This is the Blue Tarp, sharing the stories of the northern Susitna Valley as told by those who lived them. Whether you're an old-timer or a newcomer, there's room under the Blue Tarp for everyone. Today, we're visiting one of the first buildings you see as you turn onto Talkeetna's Main Street, Nagley's General Store. Since it was built, the store has had two names, multiple owners, and at least a handful of feline residents. So join us as we take a peek under the Blue Tarp. The Sheldon family is a proud supporter of the Blue Tarp. Robert, Kate, and their families work hard through their businesses, Sheldon Chalet, Alaska Retreat, and the Sheldon Mountain House, to ensure Talkeetna's story remains vibrant for generations to come. Contact Marnie Sheldon at 907-733-2414 or visit www.sheldonchalet.com for more information. With its bright red exterior, Nagley's General Store is hard to miss. The legacy of Nagley's name in the northern Susitna Valley begins more than a century ago. Talkeetna Historical Society Executive Director Sue Dio explains some of the history of how one of Talkeetna's signature buildings came to be. Horace Nagley was a very smart, uneducated man. He only had an eighth grade education. He knew how to make, he knew how to do business. Um, very shrewd, very smart businessman without a lot of education. And he opened a store. Uh, his first store was at Susan Station in 1908. He fell in love with Jessamine. Um, Jessamine and Horace Nagley opened another store. She was a school teacher, by the way. Um, then uh, McDougall, which doesn't really exist as a town anymore either, um, they opened a store there. And then his third branch store, Tolkitna, opened as a tent, like everybody did back in 1916. Mm. But it opened in 1916. He opened his doors in Tolkitna. And he, we have ads that say, you know, three branch stores, Nagley's, (laughs) merchandise. It was a big thing. And he had any, for that period of time, he had three branch stores. And once, when, when Susitna Station really fell by the wayside, once the railroad got completed, McDougall and Susitna Station were no more. Mm-hmm. And, and um, this store became his. And uh, um, he, I hear different dates. Uh, I think that he and Jessamine moved here probably right around 1918, 1919 or so. They didn't really live here full time because he had all these other stores. So he'd come here and go there and back and forth. They had a, they had a, uh, they had a baby and um, then they, and they settled in Tokina because they saw that as really the, big, the biggest store with the most money. Nagley's store became an important part of life for those living in Telkeetna in the first half of the 20th century, when road access was still unavailable. Gail Weatherill grew up in Telkeetna at that time and remembers how visiting the store was part of many locals' routines. He told that story as part of the KTNA program Nuggets in 2010. Because Nagley's store was, see, that was a center of people would always come to the store because the mail would come once, once or twice a week, I think. So the train would bring the mail, I think, twice in the winter and, a, and at least twice. And everybody would go to the store and they would sit around and chew the fat. And, and while uh, Negley was back there 
sorting the mail. I had a little cubby hole back there in the store where he sorted out the mail. He took his time too. <laughs> and he sorted out the mail and then everybody would get their mail and head home or get some groceries or whatever. While they were there. Whatever that while they were there and they had a big old barrel stove there and that feet full of wood and would sit on benches and in 1947, Horace Nagley retired and sold the store to business partners Barrett and Kennedy. Along with the purchase came a new name, the B&K. The late 1940s also saw the store move to a new location. Gail Weatherill remembers helping relocate the B&K to where it currently sits near the corner of Main Street and the Talkeetna Spur Road. He ran it for a couple, three years there, right there at that one spot. And then they decided to move it. And we had to move it in the wintertime. The only time you could put, we only had two cats. Carol Close had a cat, a 22 cat, and we had a 22 cat. And, and Carol Close, he had a same caterpillar. But they weren't really rigged up for pulling that big of a building, so we had to double rig it with pulleys and stuff. And, and of course, George was pretty good at figuring that out. And hook with a, with a rope, with a chain, so you, you, you double your leverage with this caterpillar. And we did it. We put, but it took two days to move it and moved it in the winter on skids. The foundation was already put in down here. They already had the foundation all done in the summer once they met. And it was, it was measured. He measured the building up there and measured and, and put the foundation. It was only two inches off when they pulled it up on the foundation. It was all, it was perfect. <laughs> You know where the roadhouse is now? We stopped right there for that, when that's as far as we got the first day. It's in the middle of the winter, like December, cold, but a lot of snow, and so it's on skids. But the next day we had a heck of a time getting it started because it froze down. But George was, a, he was an electrician, so they were still in business when it stopped. He just hooked up the electric with, from the pole, and I seemed to just, he said, you want to grab the wires? I said, no. He twists the wires and the lights go on in the store. After being moved, the B&K would sit at its new location for the better part of half a century. While the building is still there, it was renamed to Nagley's General Store in the mid-1990s. When we return for part two of this episode, we'll hear about the day that Talkeetna almost lost the store on a very frigid New Year's Day. The Blue Tarp continues KTNA's storytelling history. In the 1980s, local residents began the process of bringing radio to the Upper Susitna Valley for community enrichment. It wasn't until January of 1993 that their dreams became a reality and KTNA broadcast over the air for the first time. Many things have changed over the past 27 years, but our mission remains the same to enrich and connect the communities of the Upper Susitna Valley through informational and cultural programming. KTNA is proud to have this opportunity to bring the history of our community's past to those living in its present. You can support this storytelling project and future episodes by becoming a sponsor. Go to www.ktna.org slash sponsor the blue tarp or call 907-733-1700 for more information.
Welcome back for part two of this episode of The Blue Tarp. In part one, we looked all the way back to the origins of Nagley's General Store and how it came to be where it is today. New Year's Day 1997 almost brought an end to the building, however. In temperatures pushing 30 below zero, a fire broke out inside Nagley's. Carolyn Ryder was helping out at the request of the store's owner, Dennis Freeman, at the time, and remembers what happened that day. Where the bar is now, the, in the pub, is, was just an empty room. And it had a lot of Kurt Wagner paintings on the walls and mockatons. And some of these, well, they were all Dennis's. And um, so couldn't get the wood stove going. So I mentioned it to the manager because I was just there just to kind of keep an eye on things. And, and I said, I can't get the fire going. So she was working on it. And I was actually in the bathroom and I heard this banging on the door. And I got up and, and uh, opened the door and she says, there's a fire. Where's the fire extinguisher? So I ran back to that area, and it was already up the walls and starting to go across the ceiling. And it's just, it just gives me chills right now because it's just like you don't know how you're going to react in a situation like that. And I couldn't remember where the fire extinguisher was, but the reality is that it, it, it progressed so much, one fire extinguisher wouldn't have done anything. But there was only three people in the store plus one dog, and that was um, Doug Gating's dog. So I got everybody out of the store. And meanwhile, you know, the, the fire trucks are there and everything, and, you know, everybody is coming in to help. And that's, that's the spirit of Talkeetna is that when there's something going on, um, they, they're there to help. And um, so I got out of the store, and I'm already starting to feel it right now, is that it just, it was like my mind went blank. I couldn't, because I needed to call Dennis, and there wasn't anything I could do as far as the fire was concerned. They were working on it, and, and a lot of men were stepping in with hoses and everything, and, and it took me a good while to remember even his parents' uh, number, but in any case, um, I got a hold of him, and I said, the store is on fire. And he said, is there anything left? That's all he said. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'll get on a plane and be back tomorrow. And, you know, mean, meanwhile, everybody is around and all helping, and the fire equipment was freezing because it was, it was freezing that day. And so they would go into the Fairview, and there were um, hair dryers, and they were their equipment was being thawed out with hair dryers, and then they'd come back out and fight the fire. And this went on all afternoon, and got it under control by the end of the day. But I stayed in room four of the Fairview and just peeked out the window all night long. I mean, just sat there and watched because. I felt if it started up again, we needed to get a hold of somebody. And as it turned out, there was, a, a, it did come up again, and I called them, and they came right away, of course, the fire department, and they, um, it, they said it was minor, and it was okay. They were glad I called, but that's how I spent the evening, just watching it, and never, 
never want to go through an experience of something being on fire because it's just it, it just takes everything out of you. Yeah. Rose Jenny also owned a business downtown at the time of the fire and remembers not only the firefighting effort, but the need that was created within the community with the only grocery store in town significantly damaged. Our business and turned around and looked at the door and I saw smoke coming out of Nagley's or B&K. I didn't see any smoke when I drove by but as I opened the door and turned around and looked and I don't know whether I was the one that called it in or not, whether someone else had already called it, but I did call in and I might have been the second one that called but then everything went crazy from then on. The amazing thing is that the fire department kept put the fire out and saved the building, you know? Yeah. But what I did then at the station, we started making sandwiches and coffee for the firemen. <laughs> <laughs> and they were cold and wet, you know? It was cold that day, wasn't it? New Year's it Day. It was really cold and icy. So I've heard like 20 below. I, I think it was really, yeah. really cold yeah. because their hoses were just freezing to the ground, you know? But they worked hard on it, and and so then Jane and I, and that that night we turned and looked at each other, and said, "Oh my, where is everybody going to get groceries tomorrow?" And so we put up blazo boxes in the middle of the Three Rivers Station, and Jean made a trip to town the next day, and at least brought home bread, milk, and eggs. <laughs> and we had our little quick stop grocery store from there on out. That's how that started. Until the Naglis got back up and running mm-hmm. for B and K. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how we got in the grocery business. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> intended, but I guess that's you do crazy. what the village needs. KTNA was on the scene the day of the fire. Reporter Kathy Sullivan spoke to some of the responders. Time has taken its toll on some of these archive recordings, so our apologies that they're not of the kind of quality you're used to hearing from us. Carol Gross was busy during the fire thawing out the gear that had been frozen in the sub-zero temperatures. So we got little dryers blown on these uh, valves and tanks. That's right, we're we're, uh, rehabilitating these air packs. They did freeze up out in the ice. Yeah, there's so much water out there and it's so cold that all the, uh, the masks and the tanks are freezing up, so we have to try to dry them out here and keep the guys gone. A significant fire on a holiday is always a tall order for a small fire department, even when the weather cooperates. Even though he was no longer fire chief, Bill Powers turned out for the Nagley's fire as well. Right now, it's, we've got a knockdown. It's, uh, they've saved the building pretty much. The, uh, the structure, the roof is gone, the gable ends are gone, but uh, it's not going anywhere from now. I know Hudson's were worried that it would take their house, but uh, that's not going to happen. We wouldn't let that happen anyway. Both the building and the business survived the New Year's Day fire of 1997, and Freeman continued to own Nagley's until he sold it just a handful of years ago. When we return for part three of this episode, we'll hear about the four-legged occupants of Nagley's over the years, including the one for whom many know Talkeetna in the first place. Stay with us.
Welcome back for part three of the Blue Tarp. So far, we've covered some of Nagley's General Store's history, including the day that Talkeetna nearly lost the building. In part three, we're going to focus on the store's residents, particularly those of a feline variety. The first store cat that we know and name for was Gemini, who belonged to Adele Schaff. Deb Vaughn remembers Gemini fondly, particularly his favorite perches within the store. This is Gemini. That was Adele's cat, and she loved him so much. And he's in the liquor store, laying on an Olympia box. But he mostly was in the grocery side, and Adele always had one of those great big boxes of bazooka bubble gum, individually wrapped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he, if anybody wanted any gum, you had to move the cat, because that's where he usually spent his time at the store, was in the bazooka bubble gum box. He was the first grocery cat that I know about. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if, I never saw one when Emery Kunkel was there. And, no, I don't know about anybody that owned the store before Emery. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he stayed there until, uh, until he died and we buried him right in the backyard there. After Gemini, there were other cats, including one named Squeaker, who belonged to Carolyn Ryder. There's always been cats there. I didn't know Gemini, who was the first one. But we had other cats, and then I had a cat called um, Squeaker. And Squeaker was called that because he didn't meow. And his favorite spot was in the liquor store. You know, he'd go up and just, you know, hang out on one of the, the crates holding liquor, and I guess he could have a good view from up there. And, and so um, I was a bit transient at that time because I was renting my house, and um, so Dennis was taking care of Squeaker, and they were both living in the upstairs of Nagley's, and uh, Dennis was going to take off for a while, so he asked me to come back and manage while he was gone, and that was uh, New Year's Day, or New Year's Eve. That New Year's Eve Carolyn mentioned was the day before the Nagley's fire. While all of the humans made it out of the building, Squeaker sadly did not. Carolyn says it was not long after that when store owner Dennis Freeman gave the okay for a new store cat, and a new era began. And so he put out the word, and um, I wasn't actually physically there when someone brought cats in, but one was selected, didn't have a tail, and so Dennis said, well, let's call him Stubby. And uh, that's how he got his name, of course. And I remember the first couple of days I wanted to keep him in the office because he was so tiny. But he would just howl and carry on. And it was just finally like, okay, let's just give him the run. And he did fine. He found the places that he wanted to go and rest and be nice and warm. And, you know, stubby. He wasn't about to be kept in any, any one single place. So... I mean, just what a love of an animal. I mean, he just, stories about him, could write a book about him. Yeah. Stubby became better known internationally as Mayor Stubbs. The fact that Talkeetna doesn't have a municipal government, and thus no mayor, doesn't seem to have slowed down the early viral sensation that was Talkeetna's feline mayor. The thing is, over time and many, many retellings, the story of how Stubbs's mythical mayor status came about has gotten a little fuzzy. Carolyn Ryder and Holly Stinson, who both lived here at the time, try to sort out where that story began. I've thought a lot about it, but I had read a 
online about this uh, writer who had come up here, uh, I guess on a vacation, and had gone back to Florida and wrote about Stubbs. And he was saying, and I guess he was kind of paralleling, paralleling it with the uh, the national news and how decisions are made, and and you know Stubbs could be mayor, and and so that in my mind is I remember how he became mayor, and of course then people just built on it, and he became Mayor Stubbs. Well, it's interesting because I um, had always understood that it was during the um, incorporation vote, mm-hmm. and that um, if this, the town voted to incorporate, then the second question on the ballot was, who do you want as mayor? And it was Sandy Shoulders and Joe Page mm-hmm. or other. And that was for a write-in. And that Stubbs actually got votes. And I think he got more votes. More write-in votes, write-in votes. Than any other write-ins. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. But, so that's what I've always heard. As, I remember that, too. Regardless of how the story began, Stubbs made international headlines on multiple occasions, partially owing to his tendency to find himself in sticky situations. Stubbs acted like a mayor and took the run of the town. As a result, his 20-year life included a bath in an oil fryer, being shot with a BB gun, and being attacked by a dog. Still, he thrived. When Stubbs was 17, Nagley's changed hands again. This time, the buyers were Steph and Chattel Spone. Stubbs was at the height of his fame, and his face adorned quite a bit of merchandise in Nagley's. For the Spones, though, he was a beloved pet. I loved it, and my youngest daughter and Stubbs were best friends. He would follow her around, she would carry him, she would... Um, so, and Nico has a real animal mm-hmm. sense. They just like her. All animals like her. Um, and they would sleep together in Nico's bed next mm-hmm. door, because we, sl- we lived in the house here for the first couple of years, and every night we would see him curled up right by Aww. her head. And he wouldn't sleep anywhere else. After he started not doing so well, he would sleep on the floor right next to her bed in his bed because he couldn't really get up on the bed anymore. Um, but he would still curl up right next to I mean, he was like a puppy. So who couldn't love Stubbs? You know, he, when he wanted to be petted or he came to you and he would let you pick him up, he would let you pet him, he would get on your lap, he would... And when he didn't want any of the attention, he would go and find a spot that nobody could find him. Mm-hmm. And he would just hang out there until he was done, you know, mm-hmm. until he was ready to be a people person again. Mm-hmm. And so we really fell in love with Stubbs um, right when we got here. And we had seen him quite a few times when we had just come mm-hmm. up before we had even owned the place. Um, but he was part of everything, you know, and Dennis wasn't going to keep him and take him with him. So mm-hmm. it, it was kind of you know, you guys are okay with him and all of, you know, everything about, you know, any of his medical bill, you know, any of that still has to be taken care of. And that was the least of our worry. You know, that was really the least of any of our worries by taking over the store. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was pretty cool too. He, when he got to his later, I mean, he was already 17, but even later when he couldn't, there's a really steep ladder to go to the second floor and he couldn't get up anymore mm-hmm. so we built a catwalk up the wall with boards so he could still make it up to the second floor oh, and, cool. and get up you know without climbing mm-hmm. so it was, it was kind of cool mm-hmm. um, yeah we did try to make it as <laughs> homey because he loved going upstairs i think that's where um dennis had some stuff of his mm-hmm. um and so he used to just climb the stairs and it was like a ladder and he would just climb right up it 
and then he would just go face down to go down and but as he got older he wasn't able to do it and we could tell that he kind of still wanted to kind of have the roam of the whole house not just the downstairs so we had built like this big old ramp around the whole house so he could kind of start at the bottom and make his way all the way up and he loved it it was great for a couple of years he used that um and then finally just started not really doing too much mm-hmm. moving at all but um he was great for a couple of years he had that ramp and he he never ran up it but you know he wasn't like a kitten but he did get to go you know and you would find him he'd come out this door on the deck and he'd go sit up on the roof and he'd go back and forth and so he really did have um full run of everything <laughs> under the care of steph chattel and their daughters Stubbs lived to see 20. With a famous pet, however, comes a lot of publicity when they near the end of their life. Steph says national and international news outlets would call with rumors of Stubbs' passing. When his time finally came, though, the family wanted to keep things between the mayor and his constituents. There were a couple of times before he passed that the news heard that he had passed. And so we'd been contacted by CNN and NBC and, you know, everybody multiple times leading up to probably a year prior to him actually passing and when he passed we'd had numerous people call us oh we heard that Stubbs passed no he's fine he's right here you know he's okay um we knew it was getting close um and we were you know it was to the point where he wasn't really getting up and he was um he was really taking a turn for the worst and I'm gonna cry But we tried to keep it as as personal with just the town as we could. Before Stubbs passed, the Spones got two kittens, Aurora and Denali. While they don't hang out in the store like their predecessors, you can often see one of them, typically Denali, trying to fill the mantle left behind by Talkeetna's most famous four-legged resident. That's all for this episode of The Blue Tarp. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it and leaving a review on iTunes. The Blue Tarp is a production of Talkeetna Community Radio Incorporated and KTNA Talkeetna. It is produced in partnership with the Talkeetna Historical Society. Our sponsors for Season 1 are Studio Z Yoga, Mahay's Jet Boat Adventures, Denali Arts Council, Sheldon Chalet, West Hair Studio, Moore's Hardware and Building Supply, Talkeetna Historical Society, Realtor Deanne Autry with McKinley View Real Estate, and Talkeetna Northern Gallery. House. The Blue Tarp is also made possible in part by the National Federation of Community Broadcasters Community Counts Initiative. More information is available at nfcb.org. Elliot Hunker voiced our sponsor messages. Our interviewers for this episode were Holly Stinson, Cece Schoenberger, and Sue Dio. Archival tape was produced by Kathy Sullivan and Holly Stinson. The Blue Tarp theme was written and performed by Larry Zarella. Other music included in the Blue Tarp episodes was written and performed by Doug Geating, Larry Zarella, Deborah Wessler, and Steve Durr. We'd also like to give a special thanks to the members of the Blue Tarp editorial board. This episode was narrated and produced by me, Philip Manning. You can check out more about the Blue Tarp, including how to support the show at ktna.org. Mm-hmm.